Welcome to the Sunday message from Hollyview Church in Boring, Oregon. We gather each Sunday morning at 10.30 as a worshiping community of Jesus followers on mission to see God glorified in our lives, our cities, and around the world. At Hollyview, the Bible serves as our foundation and guide for both life and ministry. It tells the story of God and the story of us. We believe the better we know the themes and flow of the biblical story, the better we will be able to find our little place in God's grand storyline. Thank you for joining us. And now, here's this week's message from Hollyview Church, as Pastor Joel continues in the book of 2 Samuel, going into chapter 2, with a message entitled, Unity, Two Camps. My name is Joel Woodard. I'm the, I'm the pastor here, and I'm so glad to see you guys here today. I'm so glad it, the forecast was for partly sunny uh, today, so we're really enjoying that. Next week, we'll probably be inside. I think we're just done with uh, in and out. If it really starts raining, I don't know, maybe I'll just quick, I'll quick sermon and then we'll go. We'll see. Uh, but you are Oregonians, so we can, we can last quite a while. Um, we're excited to have you here today. We have a good message today. I'm, I'm actually approaching this message and it has weighed heavy on me this week. Uh, so as I bring it, it is actually pushing against me as well. Uh, so as I preach it to you, I'm preaching it to me, and I think we'll all feel a little bit uncomfortable uh, in that. But this is the Word of God. Uh, it, sta- it holds as our standard for, for life. Uh, and so I think w- what it says and what it uh, shares with us, we need to take with real seriousness. Um, so I want to begin today. Uh, we, in, we began a series in 2 Samuel, so we're going to do that today. I want to start by reading the Word of God uh, in 2 Samuel in chapter 2. 2 Samuel chapter 2. If you have a, a Bible or a phone, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to get you a, a Bible. Last week we began 2 Samuel by looking uh, at the news of the death of Saul and the lament that David uh, cried over this man who had abused David, was horrible to him, uh, and how David could still honestly lament the loss of Saul and his uh, son Jonathan, actually a trusted friend of of David. Uh, Today we're going to pick up the story, 2 Samuel chapter 2. Let's begin to read in verse 1. After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go up? And he said to him, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, and everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When they told David, it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul. David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord, because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. I will do good to you, because you have done this. Now, therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant. For Saul, your Lord, is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Verse 8. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ithbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him uh, over to Mahanaim, and and made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and and Benjamin and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David, and the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. 
Oh, we're actually not going to read the rest of the chapter, but if you go on and read the rest of the chapter, you see that there's these two camps set up, uh, and they start by challenging each other. Hey, let's have a little duel. Uh, and, and then they, they, that duel really comes into a, a, a war, an all-out fight and battle against each other, where uh, 360 of Abner's men end up dying, and 19 of David's men uh, die, until finally they go, okay, time out. Let, let's call a truth, truce to this. We're not, we're not getting anywhere. Um, we're going to focus on the first 11 verses today, but, but let's, let's stop for a moment and, and pray. Lord, this is, uh, it's been such a busy week for us all uh, with school and sports and jobs and uh, everything, Lord. I know there's um, lists in all of our heads of the things that we need to do in the next um, hours of the rest of the day and then this week. Lord, I just pray for peace for a few moments as we stop and chew and meditate on your word. Lord, that you would speak to each one of us today, that we would leave here more in love with you. We'd leave here challenged and changed. And Lord, I, I just pray that over the next few moments as we um, consider your words, that we wouldn't be defensive. That we would be humble in heart. That we would allow your word to press into areas that need to be pressed into. So that we could look more like you. So that we could love you better. That we could be loved by you uh, even more freely on our end. So Lord, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, and soften our hearts, Lord, so that we could really uh, understand. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this, this chapter is actually a momentous chapter as it's the Lord finally appoints his anointed king to rule and to reign on this earth. It's the first picture we have of, of God uh, physically ruling on this earth through an anointed king. And it's interesting, it doesn't take place uh, in a parade or a big celebration. It actually happens uh, in this little town called Hebron and in a mountain where hardly anyone even uh, sees and then the very first act of this anointed king is then to go on and bless the opposing party or, or the people that are loyal to the former king. But, but even though this chapter starts with God's anointed king physically reigning on the earth, uh, right from the very beginning we already have a kingdom that's divided, a very broken world. Now before we consider this epic moment of the anointing of David as king, I, I want to remind us of a similar pattern that, that we all live through. I mean, we've experienced as humans over and over again, even as recently as this last year. Now, there's an article in the Journal of Cultural Studies that says this about the time we're living in. It says, the current COVID-19, the coronavirus, global pandemic, has resulted in a wave of advertising and marketing approaches that are based on commodified concepts of human connection, care, and community in a time of crisis. At the core of many brands' marketing messages, whether they be supermarkets or retail or celebrity self-branding, is the notion that, and you're gonna hear, you've heard this over and over again, the notion that we're all in this together. We're all in this together. And you think, finally, the world is unified. We're all in this together. We're all fighting the same germ, the same global pandemic. We're all in this 
together. What a great unifying experience this last 18 months has been. Has that been your experience? We're all in this together. Well, it hasn't been my experience at all. This, for me at least, in my lifetime, has felt like one of the most divisive periods that we've ever lived through. We say we're all in this together, but we're not really unified. I mean, even when there's a global pandemic, we can't really receive and experience this unity among people. And I think because as humans, I don't actually know if we know how to achieve it. Even in light of a global pandemic, you know, just because there's a phrase in, in, in communism that actually w- said this, just because uh, you, two people on a playground and they have the same bully against them, the, the, same, the same enemy does not make those two people unified. And in fact, there, there's even like this uh, jockeying of position. Well, who's next in charge if this is the bully? And, and then even if the bully goes away, uh, the unity that they once felt just fractures apart. Just because you have the same common enemy, just because you have the same germ going through the whole world will not unite us. It's actually a shallow unity. As soon as that goes away, our unity, even our identity, just cracks and falls apart. And what we thought was unity was not really unity. It's very shallow. Uh, I'm sure for many of you, yesterday was spent looking at uh, videos and uh, pictures of uh, the World Trade Centers or uh, that day 20 years ago. Uh, We just got married, and we came back two days before that from L.A., uh, it was very shocking to come back uh, after your honeymoon and experience all that. But here's the one thing I remember after 9-11. If you were around, you remember this too. We were unified. We were together as Americans, coming together, all of us one. We're saying we're going to bring justice. We're going we're to respond to this. We're going to rebuild. We were unified for about three days. Uh, Three days after, on September 14th, the California representative, and you might remember this too, uh, Barbara Lee, she cast the opposing vote against the war in Afghanistan. Now, I'm not saying if we should have gone to Afghanistan or not. That's not the point. But three days later, and and there's already beginnings to be cracks of how do we respond to this. We, We see this evil that has come, and even with the same common enemy, we don't really know how to be unified as a people. And for 20 years, it's just a reminder that, that even in the face of this overwhelming evil, we're not really unified. How, how do we get there? We all long to be unified, right? Or most of us, to be in this together. That's why they advertise it. We're all in this together. We can experience authentic community. And what the world is saying is just this, this thin layer of unity. And it's difficult for us humans to maintain and experience that. That's why nations fall apart. That's why uh, music bands break up, sports teams split, uh, even marriages end in divorce, and and friends go their separate ways, and yet all along we, we long to be united. So how do we get there? How can we actually truly experience unity? Well, as we come back to our text today, we're going to see that true unity can only come about, can only be experienced when you humbly follow God's anointed king. Humbly follow God's anointed king. Everything else, 
everyone else will eventually fall apart. So here's what we're going to do today. Uh, here's kind of the, the road map that I think of of uh, the verses as we walk through them. Uh, we're we're going to take three stops in our text today, and they're actually three different towns uh, along the way. The first stop will be in Hebron, and we'll see that in verse 1. Uh, and then we'll go to Jabesh Gilead, which is the second town that's mentioned in verse 4. And then finally, on our uh, journey today, we're going to stop in a town called Mahanaim, which I know you all are curious to say. Can you say Mahanaim? Okay, are you awake? Mahanaim? It sounds almost like Hawaiian or something, doesn't it? <laughs> Maybe that's because I was just in Hawaii. Uh, these towns, these three towns, Hebron, Jabesh Gilead, and Mahanaim, they, they all have deep significance for us. And hopefully with a little bit of background, you'll begin to see uh, this story come into place so that God's anointed king is, is going to bring unity, but there's going to be some opposing views as well. So first stop is in Hebron. David, he's defeated all the enemies, uh, the, the Ammonites and the Amalekites, uh, and the Philistines are still there, but, but he'll get them uh, a little bit later. Uh, Saul has been killed. The crown has been brought to uh, him, the armlet, everything for power for David. David is now set up to be the king, to, a, to ascend the throne and to put things right, finally. Uh, but he doesn't. He doesn't take and, and seize the power that's right in front of him. He, he doesn't grab it. It's almost like uh, the, the, the ring is right there if he could just slip it on. He could seize the power of the kingdom, but instead he doesn't. Because I think David knows that the way up the way of ascension is actually the way of humble obedience. Let's, let's read those first two verses again. And I want you to uh, notice how many times the word go up is in those verses and, and David's response to all of this. He, he, he had the whole kingdom right there in front of him. He could have just seized it and, take, and taken all of it, but instead he doesn't. And, and look how he goes up. Uh, chapter 2 and verse 1, it says, And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up? Shall I ascend? I think that's both uh, geographically, but also uh, positionally. Shall, shall I be the king of everything? Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. David said, to which shall I go up? To which, to which city, which place? And he said, to Hebron. So David went up. There and his two wives also. He knew him of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. I think most people would seek uh, to take the opportunity to, to take charge or take leadership or a greater position or power, and they would grab it because, of course, if it's laid in front of you, you should grab it and take it. David had won the military battle. It was, on, it was all in his favor. This group of supporters, he had the crown in his hand, but it appears that the way of going up, of ascension, of rising up, is actually a way of humble obedience to the Lord. So he asks the Lord, should I go up? And if so, where should I go? To what city am I supposed to go? And God tells him a city, to Hebron. Hebron? Why Hebron? Why not to Jerusalem? Why not to Shiloh where the tabernacle was? Why go to this ancient city? Well, Hebron, it was not a place of political power at all. But it was a place 
of meaningful history and promise of the Lord. Hebron. God says to David, go to Hebron. And I wonder if, however God tells him that, if David just gets chills. Hebron? He knew that place really well. And in fact, anyone who was an Israelite in that time would know that place so well. Hebron. Hebron was the place where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were all buried. It was the place where their wives, Sarah, Rebecca, and Leah were all buried. You couldn't go to that little place and not remember how God had led and protected his people for a thousand years at that point. And even more than that, Hebron was the place where uh, David's great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, Abraham, first came when they came to the promised land. Uh, God had told Abraham, I want you to go to a land I'm going to show you and I'm going to give it to you. Uh, And and so he goes, but he goes with his cousin Lot. And as they uh, finally get there, uh, they had to go through Egypt on this uh, funky way. But after they get through Egypt, they're, they're just loaded with camels and horses and donkeys and people. They're huge in number. And they get to the promised land and they're so big. Uh, that Abraham tells Lot, hey, uh, it's too big. We're, we're end up going to be fighting or, 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 or something. Or we don't, maybe the land doesn't have enough for us or, or whatever. We need to divide. So Lot, you take the place you want to go, and I'll take the place that's left over. Uh, you choose first, and then I'll choose the second. We, you pick the story up in uh, Genesis 13, if you want to follow along. Genesis 13, or just write it down. Genesis 13, beginning in verse 14. It says, The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him. Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord at Hebron, the place of promise that God was going to do this redemptive act through Abraham and his sons for generations to come. And Hebron was going to be the place where it began. It was Hebron that God affirmed his covenant with Abram. It was the start of the story of God's dealings with his people and his land so long ago, a thousand years before. And the people must have thought, well, have we messed up? I mean, have we just so missed the point that God's not going to be faithful to his covenant and his promise? Maybe God forgot. It's been a thousand years. He tells David, here's where I want you to go. I want you to go to Hebron. He's renewing his promise. There is hope. God is not finished with Israel yet or blessing the world through them. It was actually from Hebron uh, a long time before that Abraham uh, actually interceded for his cousin Lot. Do you remember that story of Lot going to Sodom and Gomorrah and living there? And and Abraham as a priest really intercedes for for Lot. Lord, if there's just one or two, or two people, would you, would you save them? Would you, would you rescue them? That was from the land of Hebron as Abraham is being like this uh, priest 
to the nations and trying to rescue people in the face of, of evil. It was also in that place of Hebron that David brings his whole family and they're together. It's a, it's a place of, of promise, Hebron. Well, next we're going to see uh, the next stop on our journey. Uh, we've seen that, uh, that David is anointed as king. And then the very next thing we see is this connection between uh, David's first act as king and this town of Jabesh Gilead. Jabesh Gilead. Now, uh, if you knew that town in the nation of Israel, you were like, oh, I know those people of Jabesh Gilead. It was on the east side of the Jordan, so it actually wasn't in the promised land. The, the, the people of Jabesh Gilead have been talked of throughout the history of Israel as well. They're actually very weak people. When Joshua went into the land to, to overtake it, they asked everyone, come on, fight with us. And Jabesh Gilead said, ah, we don't really want to fight. Uh, we want to stay. We want to stay out of this. We don't really can't do anything. And, and then also we have a story in First Samuel 11, if you care to read that this afternoon, where where uh, the people of Jabesh Gilead they're they're facing the Ammonites, and the Ammonites come to them and say, "We're going to destroy you." And the first thing the people of Jabesh Gilead they're just trembling. They're just afraid. So they're like, "Okay, we'll we'll strike a deal with you, a treaty. If we can poke out all your right eyes, uh, we'll we'll live in peace with you." And I'm just imagining the Ammonites just laughing. Like, we'll poke out all your men's right eye, and then uh, you, can, you can live with us in peace. And, and the interesting thing is Jabesh Gilead, they actually consider this for like seven days. Well, should we do it or, or not? These are, these are, weak, these are weak people. Uh, but it's during that that the Spirit of God rushes on Saul and Saul ends up leading this group of people to beat the Ammonites and, and give the people of Jabesh Gilead their freedom. Uh, the, the people of uh, Jabesh Gilead were, were weak, and, and the one thing I think that Saul did, at least it's probably the highlight of 1 Samuel, the one good thing that Saul did as king was to rescue these people of Jabesh Gilead. And so the people of Jabesh Gilead were very loyal to Saul, as well they, they should be. I mean, he had rescued them. They still had their right eye because of Saul. So when the people of Jabesh Gilead hear that Saul had fallen and his sons had fallen and that they um, had actually taken their bodies and strung them on the city walls to disgrace them, uh, the people of Jabesh Gilead snuck through the night, took the bodies down, and went and buried them in their town. Uh, if anyone was loyal to Saul, it was the people of Jabesh Gilead. Now, now back to our text today. Uh, David, it's his first day as king, the anointed king of Israel, and, and it's told to him, hey, the people that grabbed uh, Saul's body and, and took it back and buried it is the people of Jabesh Gilead. You know those people. Uh, I almost wonder if the, the men of David told him that of like, hey, if you want to know who's going to be loyal to you and who's going to be loyal to, to another group, it's the people of Jabesh Gilead. They're still loyal to Saul. Even in death, they're loyal to Saul. So, so watch out for them, David. Should we, should we go and attack them? They have nothing in common with David or David's men. They're not men of, of, of strength or war at all. It says... Uh, it says that David, though, when he hears the news that it's the men of Jabesh Gilead, he blesses them. At the end of verse 4, it says, when they, when they told David it was the men of Jabesh Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord, 
because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. They showed loyalty to Saul. David's opposition, if it was political parties, it would be like the opposite political party. And David's first act as the enthroned king of God was to show, uh, was to show blessing and kindness to his opposition. It wasn't to show power. It wasn't to promise, I'm going to bring you all these things and I'm going to do all this great stuff or, or smear the, the opposing king that was before him. It wasn't to tell him how great he was. David's first act as God's anointed king was an act of true humility, an act that could bring unity to these people. Bless you. The people that were on the other side of him. To bless those who opposed him. That, that even while these people were like, almost like enemies to him, that David showed his mercy and love to them and, and blessed them. Uh, in this story, David's really a picture of Jesus. God's anointed king who loves his enemies and blesses those who persecute him. That, that's God's anointed king his act of blessing his enemies. We've seen Hebron. It's a place of promise. Jabesh Gilead is really a place of blessing. And this brings us to our third place, our last stop on our journey today, Mahanaim. David's been enthroned in Hebron. His first act is to bless those of Jabesh Gilead. Uh, but actually close to Jabesh Gilead, there's this other town called Mahanaim. And that's where Saul's commander, Abner, took Saul's son, Ithbosheth, uh, he takes him, and I don't know why uh, Saul's, that son didn't die in battle. Maybe he was too young, maybe uh, he didn't want to go into battle, but he doesn't die in battle like the other ones. Uh, so, so Abner takes him and makes him king. And really the way it's all worded, it, it seems like Abner, he doesn't want to lose power or control or his influence, so he just takes someone, almost like he's going to instill him as like this puppet king, where Abner can still have uh, the power and the position. I think this is, there's a general principle that there seems to always be opposition to God's anointed king. There always seems to be people who reject God's anointed king and actually take one for themselves. So Abner takes Ithbosheth, uh, Saul's son, and, and brings him to this place called Mahanim, and there he anoints him as king, in opposition to God's anointed king. And it's interesting, it's, it's at Mahanaim. Once again, we have this deep, rich history. This time it actually takes us back to Genesis 30, 32. Uh, we don't have time to, to read all that, but it's the story of Jacob and Esau, these two brothers that were fighting for the, uh, the covenant promises. Um, you might remember that Jacob, uh, he's the, the weaker of them, but he ends up tricking his brother Esau into, into getting the, the birthright with this bowl of soup and actually tricks his brother. Uh, and there's this anger that arises in Esau, and so then Jacob runs away um, because he doesn't want to get killed, but he's gotten the birthrights through some real trickery. He, he runs away. He finds a wife. But then the tricker is tricked. You remember that story? And then he ends up with, with two wives. But the Lord continually blesses him. Like He gets this huge group of, of people and camels and, and horses and family. And then finally the Lord says, okay, it's time, it's time to go back. Uh, decades later, 
Jacob comes back to meet Esau, and we see this in uh, Genesis 32 in verse 1. It says, Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. Mahanaim, uh, if you looked in your Bibles, actually has a footnote. Mahanaim actually means two camps. So think about what's happening here. He's coming back to meet uh, his brother Esau. He encounters these angels and he says, boy, this is God's camp. This is the place where God is. And so he names the place, this one place, Mahanaim, which means two camps. So the one place, uh, uh, two camps. Now just hold that in your mind. If you go down in the story, if you jump down to verse 7, and fi- Jacob finally is meeting his brother uh, Esau. He's just about to meet him. In verse 7 it says, Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into, and it says, two camps, into Mahanaim, thinking, if Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, uh, then the camp that is left will escape. So fear makes Jacob divide his one camp into two. Which camp would you want to be a part of? I'm like, put me in the farther one because you're just like, you're willing to sacrifice one. He, he, Jacob takes what is one and divides it into two. And did you see what happened when, when he first comes? It's God's one camp that's called Mahanim, two camps. God is uniting, humanity is dividing. There's two camps where God is, that he's bringing together in one, and where there's fear and sin and pride, we have this division. So back to our text today again. So Abner, Saul's commander, uh, doesn't want to follow David. He doesn't want to lose control. Maybe he's he's afraid that he's going to do something bad uh, to him. So he decides, let's make two camps. Uh, Two camps in Israel, two kings So he goes to Mahanaim, two camps to divide the people of Israel under two kings as well. And so we're left, like on day one or two of God's anointed king with this question, which king are you going to follow? Which camp are you going to be in? Are you going to follow God's anointed king? Are you going to choose a substitute? One that unites or one that divides? So we've had Hebron, Jabesh Gilead, and now Mahanim. So we have God's redemptive promises through the years as he's leading. We have a blessing uh, over his enemies or those opposed him by the anointed king. And now we have this dividing into two camps. Let's put all that stuff together. I I think uh, from this story what we can really learn is that the only way we can truly experience unity is by humbly following God's anointed king. By humbly following God's anointed king. Only God, through the anointed king Jesus, can take two groups of people and make them one. Can take a divided nation and heal it. Can take a family and bring it back together again. Can take people of two opposite parties and make them church together. You know, this uh, last year and a half has wreaked havoc on the church, on families, 
on our, our communities. As so often, it has exposed the frail nature of what we've really said is unifying. And often because of uh, fear or pride or, or, or just thinking you're right, we, just like Abner, have taken people and things and concepts and ideas and we've made them king over us. Republican or Democrat? Mask or no mask? Vaccine or no vaccine? Contemporary or traditional music? Homeschool or public school? Ducks or beavers? The list goes on and on and on. I I know uh, what you're probably thinking because I think the same thing. I'm convinced that my perspective and my opinion and my experience is true and right and valid, and so I hold that up to be the right thing. And I make a second camp. We, we want to be king. We want our, our ideas, our experiences to be, to be king. We don't want anyone telling us what to think or what to do. And in fact, we're convinced in our own minds we're right. But only God has established his one true anointed king. And it's only through Jesus that we will ever get to experience unity. So it leaves us with the question, how do we know what camp we're in? If we're so convinced in our minds that what we think is right, how do we know that we're not making another king over us other than Jesus? Even if we're doing it from like deep convictions or we're just so convinced that what we think is right, how, how do we know uh, when that line is and how do we know what camp we're in and that we're uniting and not dividing? Let me offer you just two simple questions uh, to carry with you. Put in your pocket, in either pocket, as you go through your week before you act or speak. If it's, if it's meant to lead to unity or, or are there things that you really need to disagree on? Things that, that can as, uh, make us as a church unified, even if we disagree on COVID-19 or politics or education. So here's the first question. Ask yourself, is what I'm about to do or to say, does it honor the true king? Does it honor God's anointed king? Not does it honor me, not am I convinced is it right. Just simply ask the question, is what I'm about to do or say or respond Does it honor Jesus as king? You may be convinced in your heart and your mind that you're right, that the logic is there, that the science is there, that the manipulation is there. All these things you may be convinced of. But but to cut through all those, ask yourself, is what I'm about to do, is what I'm about to say, does it honor King Jesus? If you are in God's camp, Mahanim, where the two become one, then we should reflect the grace and love and mercy of our king, right? That's what kingdom we're a part of. So put that question in your pocket. Is what I'm about to do or say, is it going to honor the king? The second question is, is what I'm about to do or to say, is it a blessing to my neighbor? Will it be taken as a blessing or a curse? Before you speak, uh, asking yourself, is this a blessing to them? Uh, ask yourself, even maybe, do I care about this person? The person that's in front of me, do I actually care about? 
And if you say, no, I don't, then just walk away until God can change your heart. And then as you come back to them and say, do I really care about this person? Yes, I do. Then it should impact how we relate with them, how we speak with them. David, as the anointed king, this picture of this first thing in office as the anointed king of the Lord is to bless the group that opposes him, that is loyal to the opposite side, that has nothing to do in common with him. Let me just ask you, do you do that? Uh, Political parties, uh, science mandates, all these things, do you bless those who oppose you? And if we're honest, I would say, boy, this last year, that's been hard. Uh, The question of am I honoring the king in my decision, uh, when you mix in some emotions and some anger and some feeling like I'm being abused in this, uh, then it feels like I don't don't care about honoring my king. I care about me getting what I want to get. And in doing that, I am making two camps. And I think the sad thing is we've seen it in our world too often. We, We see it in churches too often. That our identity becomes a political party or our response to some pandemic. And here's the last thing. We all long for unity. The world longs for unity. That's why they market it. We're all in this together because they know at the heart of everyone we want to be unified. But the world doesn't know how to achieve it. They can't achieve it. Anything that unifies them is going to break apart at any moment. Only those who follow the God's anointed king humbly can actually feel unity. And so that makes us a light in a dark world. It makes us uh, people who disagree on, on things. And I'm glad we disagree on things because we can come together as brothers and sisters and say, is the way I'm addressing this person who has opposite views than me, is it honoring the king and am I blessing them rather than cursing them? Ephesians 2.14 says, For he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Jews and Gentiles who had such opposing views in the cross and in Jesus, they can be unified. 1 Corinthians 1.10 says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united, not in uh, who you vote for or how you're responding to the pandemic, that you be united in the same mind and same judgment in Jesus. For it's reported to me by, by, by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my, my brothers. What I mean is this. Each one of you says, I follow this or I follow this. I do this or I do this. And he says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? Church, uh, this is what I long for and I think each one of us longs for. We long for unity. We long for a place where we can be safe, where we can express even our opinions and experiences and thoughts and even convictions, and and it be maybe a little bit off of the next person next to us, but because we have Jesus, our great high king, we can choose to bless those people. 
Uh, I'm actually glad that here at Hollyview, uh, and maybe some of you won't like this, uh, but I like it. We have different uh, political parties. We have people that have taken this pandemic very different, and yet we're all here together. We're, we're unified. N- not in anything other than Jesus. Jesus. That's all we got, guys. Jesus. So let us be, uh, let us be people that humbly follow Jesus in everything that we do. Uh, next week, we got a great passage as well as we're going to look at what changes the heart of those divided people. And we'll see it's not by the sword. It's by the tears of David over his enemies. It's by this grace and mercy that changes people's hearts. Uh, so come back next week. We're going to respond now in worship. But first, let's, let's pray. Lord, what a convicting message it has been all week. Thank you that it's Sunday and that I can share it. Uh, but I pray that, Lord, your word will speak to me again and again and again. As Lord, I'm so, um, I'm so easily drawn to make two camps. And I know as humans, we, that's just what we do. We divide. We make other things king other than your anointed king. And Lord, w- would you uh, allow all of us here at Hollyview and Damascus Community and Good Shepherd and Gresham Bible and Cornerstone and Sanctuary, uh, would you make all of these churches one and unified so that we could be a light to the world to show that true, true unification, true unity can only be experienced when we humbly follow Jesus. And what a freedom that is. And Lord, now would you help us respond uh, both in the song and in our, in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this message from Hollyview Church. We invite you to join us in person for our worship service every Sunday morning at 1030. You can find us on Southeast 257th Avenue, just off of Highway 212 between Boring and Damascus, Oregon. Or find us online at hollyviewchurch.com. Together, we are being shaped by the gospel, rooted in God's word, to share God's grace and truth. Again, whether online or in person, thank you for joining us here at Hollyview Church. Church.